People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. A hundred charts that define America. For instance, what percentage of population are living in households below the global poverty line comparing 1981 to today? Have there been increases in life expectancy and what have they been since 1960? Percentage of 30-year-olds earning more than their parents did when they were 30. These charts and more discussed with Scott Galloway, who's been collecting all the data and sharing all the charts. Here it is. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. So, Scott, I thought you were living in New York City, teaching at NYU. Now you tell me you live in London. Uh, You know, it makes no sense. The honest reason is, why do we move to London? Because we can. I've always wanted to live in Europe. And um, my partner's from Europe. I want my kids, I, I say out of Florida, not because we didn't love Florida, but I would like them to experience something different. We're huge Premier League soccer fans. And I try to look at everything, James, through the lens of the, what I call the deathbed test. And that is when I'm near the end and I look back on all my decisions, I just don't think I'm going to say, oh, I fucked up moving to Europe. Even if we don't like it and we move back, 
I want that experience and I have the resources to do it. Uh, it made no sense to move to New York 20 years ago. I did that and it was wonderful. It made no sense to move to Florida 10 years ago. Did that and loved that. So yeah, Europe, here we come. Yeah, no, I uh, my stepkids grew up in Ghana, China, and Kuwait. And I could see it's it's been a wonderful experience for them to just live abroad and, and get that experience. So if you could do it, that's great. We're really excited. And um, and not only that, London right now, uh, I mean, I know what a fan you are of, of cities and you comment a lot. You're sort of a, I think you have a feel for New York and what's good and what's bad about it. London has had, because of very boring private property laws passed under the Blair administration, has had such an inflow of capital. I've been going to London four or five times a year since I was uh, you know, seven because my parents are from there. It's had what I would call a five or seven trillion dollar facelift over the last four years. The food was not good in the 80s. The architecture was not arresting. Both of those things are spectacular now. It's just a world-class city. I was going to London a lot before COVID and also in the 80s, and the food was disgusting in the 80s. And now it's yeah. great. Like, yeah. I guess because the, the channel also allows for a lot of more intercommerce between countries. So chefs go up to London. Yeah, and I also, I, I, I love the British. There, I think there are brothers and sisters in arms. I don't think we'll ever have a stronger alliance than we do with the, with the UK. I think the rule of fair play. I think they're, I love the music. I just, I like it over there. I'm a bit of a, a fan. So Scott, your latest book, mm -hmm. Adrift, America in 100 Charts, I feel like it's been a little depressing, this book. Oh, did you get through it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, look, I'm naturally a pessimist. I'm a glass half empty kind of guy. Every presentation I give, I force myself to do a, a section on silver linings. But I do see the world through kind of gray colored glasses. But I do try to offer some solutions. I have a section called The World We Made that just talks about all the incredible achievements of America, whether it's we have the same level of output in a month that we had an entire year in 1950. We're responsible for 50% of the philanthropy globally. We didn't eradicate child poverty, but we cut it in half during the pandemic with the child tax credit. Unfortunately, that didn't make its way into the, it got stripped out of the infrastructure bill. But still the most talented, hardworking people in the world all have one thing in common, and that is they're either here or they want to come here. And so we're doing something right and distinctive of all the big problems we still have to work on, whether it's systemic racism or income inequality. We geopolitically, I think, are in the strongest position we've ever been. Unfortunately, it's like the call is coming from inside the house, and I find that we're tearing or eating ourselves from the inside. And that is 54% of Democrats say they're worried about their kid marrying a Republican. A third of each party sees the other party as their mortal enemy. And... It, it, it's funny you mentioned that chart. Like I, I was telling that chart to my kids, actually. In that chart, it says in 1960, for both parties, only 4% of parents Nobody cared. were worried about their kids marrying someone from the other party. But now 45% of Democrats worry about their kids marrying a Republican and 35% of Republicans worry about their kids marrying a Democrat. Yeah. Just yeah. that statistic alone is, that is depressing to me that, that, I have a saying I say on almost every podcast, politics makes people stupid. And yeah, that agreed. chart summarizes a good chunk of that right there. What I should have had next to that chart, though, is that most likely I would bet the percentage of, of parents who are worried about an interracial marriage has declined dramatically. I would bet if you ask in 1960, are you worried about 
your son mm. or your daughter marrying outside his or her ethnicity, um, a lot more people. So I think we've made progress on a lot of levels, but that's one place we haven't, and I agree with you, politics is making us stupid. But also, um, another another chart shows that marriage has declined. And I guess that happens in, it, it seems to be a trend in all developing countries mm-hmm. that people get married older or, or, or not at all. I don't know if that's necessarily a bad or a good trend, but, you know, at some point we get to the level where the population doesn't grow fast enough to, to grow. Like people don't have enough kids to actually grow the population anymore. Yeah, so I, the way I would uh, couch it is uh, marriage may or may not be the right construct for people, and consenting adults can enter into what kind of relationship they want or don't want. But what I do think is troubling is that fewer and fewer people are connecting to partners in a meaningful way, especially young people. The number of high school kids that see their friends every day has been cut in half. Uh, the number of men uh, under the age of 30 who haven't had sex in the last year is almost a third. So a third of males under the age of 30 haven't had sex in the last year. And people hear the term sex and their mind goes different places. But the elemental foundation of any society and also the blue line path to a happy, rewarding life is deep, intimate relationships. And it doesn't necessarily have to be with a romantic partner, but whether it's boy or Girl Scout attendance, church attendance, even saying hello to your neighbors, I have tons of charts on this, everything is going down. We are a social species. We need to touch, smell, and feel each other. And agency is in the greatness of others. And we're losing that greatness because we're having less contact with people. We used to go to the mall. We used to go to the movie theater. We used to date. We used to fall in love. We used to make great friendships at work. All of those things are sort of under attack. And I think there's, uh, I think loneliness will be the next cancer. I think just the number of people that don't feel connected to society is growing exponentially. And it's especially toxic or dangerous for young men who I think need guardrails, that need a boss, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, parents, male role models in their lives. Because I think our prefrontal cortex doesn't mature as quickly. We're more risk prone and we're more prone to making bad decisions if we don't have thoughtful people around us telling us to put on a shirt, exercise, stop smoking so much weed, be more kind, get a fucking job, whatever it might be. I think young men without guardrails is especially dangerous. I think about the attack on Salman Rushdie and I'm like, that wasn't about the fatwa. It was about a young man living in his mother's basement who wasn't attaching to anything. The most unstable, violent societies in the world all have one thing in common. And then as they have a disproportionate number of young, broke, and lonely men, that's the most dangerous person on the planet. And we're producing way too many of them in the U.S. Right. And I, I, you know, it's funny because I think your charts sort of build this story, this story of loneliness, of isolation, of declining intimate relationships. Even the way we meet our intimate relationships, you have one chart where it used to be through friends, that's declined. It used to be through office, that's declined. But online dating, you know, meeting someone intimately through online that's basically the only way we young people meet their romantic partners now. And what you were just saying about young men, you have a chart, 92% of mass shootings, 92% done by young men. And the question is, as we have this so-called technological innovation reach new heights, are we innovating ourselves into isolation? So now we click a button and we get a movie streamed to us. We don't have to go to the movies. We click a button and I get a meal delivered to me 
and it's left at my door. I don't have to see anyone. That's exactly like right. Like it's all designed. Every positive benefit that we've seems to have created from technology is designed for me to just sit at home in my bed watching TV and eating by myself. So in addition, it destroys our empathy. If you don't see the homeless veteran on the on-ramp or the off-ramp to and from work, do you really care about that person? If, you, if you're wealthy and you can draw your kids from the public school system and you don't go to movie theaters, you go to malls, you don't shop, you don't go to, you have your coffee delivered. Like when people don't mix, they lose empathy and regard for one another. And then in addition, you talked about online dating. Whenever technology comes into an industry, it consolidates it. There's Amazon, then 50% of online retail goes to Amazon. All social media, two thirds, goes to one player, 93% of search goes to one entity. It's happening in mating. And you think, well, there's some great things about Tinder. It's an efficient way to meet people. But here's the thing, it used to be a third work, a third friends, a third online. Post-pandemic, it's well more than half. And my gut is it's gonna be about two thirds online. And here's the problem with dating online, and I'll use both of us as an example. The way I attracted mates or sort of attracted mates as a young man is I'm funny. I have a good sense of humor and humor connotes intellect and intellect is attractive to potential mates. You're an interesting guy. You and I are both gonna do better in terms of mating offline than online because online is two dimensional. Online is, does this guy uh, signal resources, the right zip code, accidentally Rolex ends up in his profile picture and he's working at KKR and is he by traditional standards at least reasonable looking? And what you have is Porsche polygamy, where 10% of the men online are getting 90% of the attention. If there's 50 women on Tinder and 50 men on Tinder, 46 of the women show all of their attention to just four men, leaving 46 men fighting over four women. But when people meet in person, there's vibe, there's pheromones, there's humor, there's kindness. And so what online dating has done is it's been amazing for the top 10% of men, it's been okay for call it the 50 to 90 on traditional metrics and the bottom 50% have just been shut out of the market. They get absolutely no prospects whatsoever. And I would argue it's just slightly worse for all women. And so while there's a lot of great stories about people meeting on Tinder, I think the two dimensional nature of it and the fact that everyone has access to everyone creates unreasonable expectations on both sides. And the reality is women have a much finer filter than men. And when you give them the ultimate filter, they only show interest to a small minority of the men. Whereas men are less choosy, they will express interest and be more willing to have a first date with a broader set of people on online dating. So if online dating were an economy and you applied a Gini coefficient, Tinder would be more unequal or have greater inequality than Venezuela. So we're ending up again, where do we end up with? 10% of men have a ridiculous number of options, which by the way, leads to bad behavior and fewer and fewer people are finding reasons to get together and find out that maybe this guy or gal is just really interesting and I wanna spend more time with them. So I think digitization, like every other sector, is commoditizing or consolidating mating. And marriage rates, I don't know if you saw, marriage rates are plummeting. Sex right. is plummeting. Anyways, I think, it's, I, think it's a, I think it's a kind of a disaster in the making uh, for our society. Women don't want to mate with an emotionally and economically unviable man. And there's a lot of them right now. And Scott, I feel like in general, I'm an optimist. I'm optimistic about the level of innovation in our society. I'm optimistic about advances in, you know, biotech and genomics and automation and, and even, you know, environmental science. 
But lately, I've been having a lot of these discussions where a lot of these areas, and we'll talk about inequality in a second, we'll talk about science in a second and the economy. But what you're just saying now about marriage and dating and online, and look, this is related to one of your charts about the news, that there's just as much coverage of Jeff Bezos going into space as there is coverage of climate change. Now, those two subjects aside, what it suggests is that the news is not the news anymore. The news has been commoditized away. So in order to be special, it has to compete with TikTok. The news mm -hmm. can't compete with facts. It has to compete with TikTok, which is another source of estrangement from you know, reality and society and actual real life. And all of these trends, they can't be reversed. I don't see how they ever get reversed. So uh, a lot in there, but one of the things that ails us or ills us or one of the, uh, one of the maladies of society is that, uh, so gas prices have fallen 70 of the last 73 days. There's been one headline in the New York Times about it. Uh, when they went up the previous 90 days, there were 21 headlines. Mm -hmm. So the media is like a Tyrannosaurus Rex. It's drawn to movement and violence. It wants negative things to talk about. So it, it, we absolutely, uh, you know, we have CNN has the situation room. The headline, everything's slightly better today, never gets picked by an editor. And you're right, there's huge prosperity in America. The problem, I think, is that we have deliberately chosen policies that take the majority of that prosperity and cram it into the top 10%, if not the top 1%. If your kid has a rare disorder, there's a decent chance there is either, either a drug available or in development that might be able to cure a previously incurable disease. If it's Olgensma, a drug that cures this rare condition that attacks the muscles and is imminent death without this, it's $2.1 million for two shots that cure the disease. But it's $2.1 million. The life you can lead in America in the top 10% is just mind-boggling how amazing your life is. And there's some truth to the notion that uh, someone in the lower middle class, I won't say low income because I think they have to deal with a lot of stress in our society, but lower middle income people today probably on many dimensions have better lives in a real a sober study than people did 50 years ago at the upper end. They have access to unbelievable content. They can save money and go to Disney World. The problem is when media and Instagram shove in your face this notion that if you aren't taking pictures of your feet at the Almond in Venice, if you don't have a six pack, you have not measured up. You're failing. Everyone else around you is ripped and rich. You have no excuse. It creates a certain lack of self, it attacks our self-esteem, this technology. So I'm optimistic. There's just no arguing with our prosperity. The key is are we making progress? And what I don't like and what I would push back on is that there's this illusion of complexity, that these problems are so big we can't solve them. I think almost all of these we can solve. During the pandemic, we cut child poverty in half just with a, a program that was expensive but not crazy expensive. Amazon, when it got critic bombed for Lord of the Rings, you know, some bad actors, I don't know if it was other networks or whatever, started bombing Lord of the Rings and bombing uh, She-Hulk Attorney at Law, which is one of the greatest titles of a new program. So they shut down the comments page. They used AI. They started enforcing identity. And before you knew it, the comments section of Amazon Prime Video was accurate and was more thoughtful and more productive. But Facebook can't figure it out. 
I mean, election misinformation, we can't figure it out. We kick one account off Twitter and 30 to 60% of it goes away. Because we don't want to figure it out though. Like That's exactly right. Right. Well, I mean, I mean, I think this was in a, in a, one of the charts that anger solicits, you know, more interest and more of our, it's, something's more likely to go viral if it provokes anger emotions over anxiety emotions or other emotions. Yeah, it's either awe, amusement, or anger. Ah, yeah. And anger is number one. And we all have a role here. Like what I'm trying to do, I know, James, you're like, you were like one of the early thought leaders on Twitter. Uh, I came after you. I've invested a lot on Twitter. I have not a huge following, but a decent following. I am trying to dial down the heat. I'm trying to dial, I'm trying to be kinder. I used to wait for someone to get in my face and then clap back. And I was good at it. And everyone weighs in and get likes. And, and now occasionally I'm like, it's okay to take a hit every once in a while. Demonstrate grace, take the temperature down. I think we all have a role here. I'm trying to separate people from their politics and not immediately assume this is not a good person or this person is not intelligent if they supported Donald Trump. I think all of us have to um, have to embrace that or, or, or need to embrace that. I also think just because we haven't had an existential um, international threat, we don't have any. We don't really have the connective tissue of an external threat. We're eating each other. It's just very strange. Although, again, your charts tell a story that there is an existential threat looming, which is China. Essentially, the first, even though we still are have a greater economy, greater technology, greater this, greater than that, the first derivative of all of these metrics with China have gone negative, meaning their prosperity is increasing faster than ours. Um, you know, percentage of billionaires is increasing greater than ours. It's almost equal to ours. Uh, and on and on. Their percentage of unicorns, you know, increasing faster than ours. So is that going to become an existential threat? I've always said it. I, I think it's difficult for us to be morally indignant and wave our finger at China when I would argue that probably one of the greatest accomplishments, Mike, in the top two or three over the last century is in the last, I think, 40 years, China has brought a half a billion people out of poverty and into the middle class. And if you judge a society based on the strength of its middle class, China, gold, silver, and bronze metal. And we have actually shed people from our middle class. So what they've accomplished has been incredible. Now, what's interesting is the rise of China has actually had more of an impact on Europe than on America. Our economic growth has actually really held pretty steady and has been pretty strong. And if you look at our companies, no one's lining up for the Chinese vaccines. What you've seen in terms of percentage of unicorns and valuable companies is that China's rise, if it's come at the expense, and it's not a zero-sum game because we all love cheap products from China. 88% of our gifts under the Christmas tree this holiday will be manufactured in China. But the, if you were going to say, if it is a zero-sum game, who it's really hurt is Europe. And I think that China, unfortunately, straddles the line between competitor and adversary. And I think we have to be very careful about their intentions because I think, I and the technologies here, I've gotten a lot of pushback for my comments on TikTok recently. But I think- um, Well, what were your comments on TikTok? I think that um, TikTok either needs to be spun to a US entity. I think it's impossible to separate ownership from the product. I believe that there is no separation between the Chinese Communist Party and a Chinese co uh, company. I believe the CCP would like to undermine our competitiveness on the global stage. And as a result, when you have kids under the age of 18 spending more time on TikTok than every streaming network combined, 
it is an existential threat. And if I were the CCP, what I would do is I would put my thumb on the content, elegantly undiscoverable, but I put my thumb on the content of, um, or thumb on the scale of content that positions America in a bad light. And I think that if we're not careful, the Chinese could co-parent a generation of youth that feels that capitalism is not good, that feels that our elections are rigged, that feels that we have systemic racism. So I, I think it's a real threat to American security. You know, people don't realize, I think, how little it takes. Like, let's say you're right, that they have some small say in the content of TikTok, which they claim they don't, but let's say they do, which a lot of people believe that they do. You just need one out of every hundred videos to express, you know, like what you just said, a video about racism, a video about some other American problem or whatever, just one out of a hundred. And that's going to totally change the mindset of a, a generation of people. It takes very little to move the needle quite a bit. And, and that's what people don't realize in terms of content. Well, so. Uh, Facebook and Google, I think that they're, I mean, the problem there is that they're much more focused on, I don't think they lean red or blue. I think that's a myth. They lean green. They're like, whatever makes money, we don't care. And it's not immorality there, it's amorality. China's a competitor. And uh, I just think, so whether it's James Alt Altucher or Kim Kardashian, you put out content that reflects America in a very positive light. You put out other content that highlights some of the inequities in America. It is just monstrously easy. And I think they would be dumb, again, not to create algorithms that dial up the negative content. And what you end up with is a third of young people think socialism is a better construct. Supposedly 20% of people under the age of 25 think communism might be better than capitalism. 50% uh, of Republicans think our elections were rigged. I mean, when what the easiest thing to do, they can't be, uh, Russia can't beat us with kinetic power. They can't afford aircraft carrier squadrons. China can, but a better investment is to slowly but surely just figure out ways to elegantly, insidiously, and incrementally make us hate each other. The way you defeat an enemy is you atomize it. The way we came in and kind of slaughtered Native American tribes as we figured out ways to create misinformation so they started warring with each other. And then when they weakened each other, we came in and cleaned it up. Did clean up, not cleaned it up, but like, you know, kind of our early slaughter. I think that's what's happening in the US. If you look at it, if you really take the lens back, we are still number one, I think by a long shot. But if you talk to Americans on a day-to-day -day basis, they think America's doing really poorly and they blame each other. They don't blame China. They don't blame Putin. You know, they see our, our enemy is pouring over the border in Ukraine and now pouring back, which I think is an enormous victory for us. But I can't understand why we wouldn't be in the streets in Times Square kissing each other when the Ukrainians get off their heels and onto their toes. So I think that's a victory for democracy. It's a victory for Europe. And what we're going to find out is it's a victory for America, who has been supplying intelligence and outstanding weaponry to these brave uh, men and women in Ukraine. And instead we're like pissed off at each other or, you know, video of AOC or Josh Hawley. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned it yourself though. We're, we're, it's sort of like we're, we're eating ourselves from, from within. Like we're, you know, we're so polarized. We're so, we're so uh, influenced by the headlines of anger versus awe or amusement that we can't, and, Technology is increasing this individual isolation 
uh, on every level, it's hard to see how to reverse that. I have to say, Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, If you hire well, you're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important, and I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. You do tout the accomplishments of America in the 40s, 50s, 60s, post-World War II, Mm -hmm. where collectively we were able to build this giant middle class that in some sense, supported each other and, and began this period of technological innovation. And, but more recently, it's created this disturbing in- income inequality and has had other problems. But on the one hand, don't you feel that sort of the decline in people living below the po- poverty line has, you know, 
been the result of some of the, the, the policies that have also kind of decreased the middle class? It's an interesting point, but uh, so first off, I find in this situation, I'm more of an optimist uh, than you. The reason why we had, I think, more productive policies in the 50s and 60s was the majority of our leaders had served in the same uniform. We drew a lot from our military leaders in terms of leadership, and they saw themselves as Americans well before they saw themselves as Republicans or Democrats. And I think one solution is what they do in Israel and certain countries in Europe is social service. And it's easy for me to say because I've aged out, but I do think uh, 18 to 24-year-olds, mandatory one-year service. It doesn't have to be in the military. It can be in social service. But I think people from different ethnic backgrounds, different parts of the country, different political parties need to get together and discover just how wonderful Americans are and how wonderful it is to serve in the agency of something bigger than yourself and create connective tissue uh, amongst Americans. I think the lower-income Americans in poverty, well, uh, so it's it's a nuanced argument. Life expectancy has gone down through the last four years, which just doesn't make any sense when we're spending 17 or 19 percent of our GDP on health care. It just it, but, but it, that could just be because a million people, more than a million people died from covid. Well, and opioids is actually what's 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 taken opioid deaths. We, we lose more people or almost as many people every year uh, from opioid overdoses as we do from or did in the Vietnam conflict. But that's a structural decline um, or it has been over the last uh, four years because of opioid addiction. But I think we could easily, not easily, I, people like to think, oh, income inequality is just a function of the market. No, it's not. We have purposefully taken taxes down. The, the two biggest tax deductions are mortgage interest and capital gains. Who owns stocks and who owns homes? Old people. Who rents and who makes their money from current income? Young people. So almost every policy in America is an elegant transfer of wealth from young to old people. Young people have seen their share of wealth registered as a percentage of GDP go from 19% to 9%. And based on policies we voted for, 50% of America is under the age of 38. 5% of our elected representatives are under the age of 38. We start our presidential race in the oldest and widest states in the nation. So what do you know? Social Security gets a, the biggest cost of living increase in history this year. And we don't get the earned income, we don't get the child tax credit in the inflation bill. So we, we have a very democratic society and we've decided that, that old people who vote and also Maine and Iowa that determine who's president, we cater to my generation but these have been purposeful uh, policies that can be unwound. Why am I paying, when I sell my business, I, my first $10 million in proceeds is tax-free? That just makes no fucking sense. And people say, well, you can write a check to the government, Scott. I'm like, well, you know what? I'm not gonna disarm unilaterally. So we have made these decisions. It's not an accident. It's not, oh, it, these problems are beyond our control. No, they're not. We, in 1970, until 1970, productivity in America and wages were like two snakes making love. They were just inextricably wound. Productivity went up, wages went up. Productivity went a little bit down, wages went a little bit down. In 1970, there was this uncoupling and we decided to prioritize shareholders. Wouldn't it make sense that ultimately productivity and income growth would decouple because every unit of labor is gonna result in more output when there's when productivity increases so much. So wages don't, I don't say it's good or bad that wages haven't increased, but with the invention, let's say of the cell phone or in 1970, coincidentally, it's the internet, you know, was created. Uh, 
you know, with, with better communications networks and other uh, productivity increasing tools, it makes sense that you don't need as many people to be just as productive as you were before. So, so wage growth is not going to increase. All of those dynamics are absolutely the truth, but they're the same dynamics we had in the first part of the, uh, the latter half of the 19th century and the first part of the 20th century where manufacturing and assembly line technology resulted in extraordinary levels of uh, productivity increases. But what we did then was we shared it with more stakeholders. We decided, okay, shareholders are important, but workers and community are just as important. We had minimum wage. You realize minimum wage, if it had just kept pace with productivity or even inflation, would be 23 bucks a share right now. So in the last 13 years, the NASDAQ, even with its check back, has quadrupled. CEO pay has tripled. And minimum wage has gone from 725 to 725. We've made these decisions. I know, and that, that does seem like a major problem. But I, I also want to point out, though, in the first half of the century, mm -hmm. we, had, we had a lot of advances in terms of making sure, you know, uh, women could have more children. You know, many women would have children that, that would die on childbirth yep. or die early. And now, the, the so in the first half of the century, of last century, many more kids lived and 100%. the population grew very fast. Now the population doesn't grow as fast, but the economy is growing. So the economy and technology are growing faster than the population. So the wealth doesn't really get spread around as much the way it did earlier, which kept wage and productivity growth coupled together. Again, now, because technology is growing faster, the wealth is going to that top 1%, but because you don't really have to feed as many people for better or for worse. Population is, the, the first derivative population has been increasing, has been decreasing. So network technologies will naturally aggregate more resources to the most talented people because you have access now via your podcasts and processing power to a much bigger market. So the most talented, the top 1%, will aggregate more and more resources. But the most talented or the top 1% used to be taxed at much higher rates, recognizing we needed to redistribute income to the middle class. The middle class is something that will not survive on its own. It's not a naturally occurring organism, you have to reinvest in it. And one of the ways you reinvest in it is with incredible R&D and massive forward-looking investments, whether it's the space program or DARPA or GPS or a rail system that has enormous spillover. What I find very disconcerting is that the if you think of who's most patriotic in our society, it's veterans. And there are surveys that show this because they've invested in the most in our country. And you're a father, you can relate to the fact that you invest so much in your kids that even if they're not nice, even if they're not that smart, you have invested so much in this thing, you can't help but be hugely invested in it and love it. And that's true of our veterans. What I find so disheartening about our society right now is the most fortunate, and I would argue the most fortunate people relative to their talent is tech billionaires. These are people who have aggregated the GDP of a small nation who are in their 30s oftentimes, and they are the most likely to shitpost the US government. And I don't care if it's Google, I don't care if it's Moderna, I don't care if it's Apple, I don't care if it's Tesla. These companies all have one thing in common. They build a genius layer of innovation on top of extraordinary investments made by middle-class Americans through the 50s, the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s that was a forward-leaning investment by the government. And when Elon Musk says government should just get out of the way over and over, should we have gotten out of the way when we lent him $450 million for an EV company that didn't have great prospects? Should we get out of the way with our $6,500 EV 
tax credits. I mean, I mean, these companies pay a lower tax rate, and I find it just so disheartening that the people who are the most blessed seem to be the least grateful and the most likely to demean, in my view, what over the long term has been the most noble, productive organization in the history of mankind, and that is the U.S. government. And I don't understand how people this fortunate try and start an EV company in South Africa, start launching rockets out of space in Montreal. It just doesn't happen. And if you go up and down, I was just in LA, if you go up and down the Pacific coast, you find these companies worth hundreds of billions of dollars. I don't care if it's Qualcomm, I don't care if it's SpaceX, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft. And then something happens when you get just north of Seattle, it stops. There's one, Lululemon. And then you get south of La Jolla and Qualcomm and, and biotech, and it stops. And you have to go all the way down to like fucking Argentina to find Mercado Libre. So there's something about America that works really well for a lot of these very wealthy people. And the fact that they want to build offshore cities so they don't have to pay taxes when they're taking 60% of the revenue from the government, I'm talking about Palantir, I just, I find it so ungrateful and so obnoxious. And I can't understand why this lack of patriotism has infected our most fortunate like a virus. But I think we can absolutely change these things back. I think there's this, again, illusion of complexity that these, these are intractable problems. No, they are not. So let's think about a solution because I was wondering this in the beginning of COVID. Like I was in New York City, something like 60,000 out of 240,000 small businesses went out of business permanently in the city during COVID. And this was a very sad thing. Many, I was a storefront business owner, many restaurants and other storefront businesses in my area just shut down forever. And I always wondered, like all these, the billionaires were posting, oh, well, I'm getting all set to buy real estate in New York. None of them actually did. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't have taken much to help the employees of these small businesses who suddenly were out on the street and moving back into their mom's houses. Why wasn't there more organic generosity. It's one thing giving money to the big charities, but why wasn't there more, hey, my local laundromat shut down forever. My local grocery store, which helped tens of thousands of people shut down forever. Why, why do you think there wasn't more generosity from the top 1% down? So I think you and I disagree on this issue. And that is, I actually think you have to let the gale force winds of disruption blow around corporations. I think businesses should go out of business. And everyone says, well, this was an unprecedented event. I'm like, well, a 13-year bull market was an unprecedented event, but we didn't increase taxes on small business. I find that the PPP program was mostly a giveaway to rich people and that the richest cohort in America are small business owners. The millionaire next door owns uh, car washes and this cartoon of a cupcake bakery owner. My, I have an ed tech startup. We raised $37 million. We could have got $270,000 in PPP loans for not firing people. And we weren't, and it ended up you didn't even not even not need to not fire them. None of these loans were audited. That's probably the after school program budget at a high school for a year. I know this just because I went back to my old high school, university high school. I don't think that any small business over a certain income at all should have been offered these bailouts. I also think it's important that businesses go out of business because. What happens when the 55-year-old restaurant owner goes out of business? It creates opportunity for a 28-year-old graduate of the Culinary Academy to come in and buy that business for pennies on the dollar. I got to buy Apple and Amazon stock 
for one twentieth of what they're trading at now in 2009 because I was coming into my prime income earning years and the market let stocks crash. I find that the bailouts, and there's a lot of harshness here. There's a lot of people who fall between the cracks. There's a lot of misery. I believe that. And I, I, I understand there has to be a floor at some point, a safety net. But we should allow businesses to go out of business. We should allow stocks to crash because when you don't allow them to go out of business, when you artificially support the markets with steroids, our, I would describe us as an Elvis economy right now. We use drugs to wake us up. We use drugs to put us to sleep. And we end up fat and sitting on a crapper about to have a stroke. I think we should have let businesses go out of business, but all you're doing is taking opportunity from younger people. Because the reason I am wealthy is that I got to buy Apple at eight bucks a share and Amazon at 17 bucks a share because they let those stocks crash. And I think this next generation deserves their shot. And so all you're doing when you're pumping the economy full of artificial stimulus and steroids is you're transferring wealth again from young people to old people. I agree with your opinion on the government stimulus there, but it was unprecedented. Like as opposed to 2009 where market forces caused the crash, this was sort of a command by the government that all businesses shut down. And so yeah. in, in disregard to whether they were competitive or not in their, in their marketplace. So this was kind of, and, and I'm not saying the government should have bailed everyone out. I'm saying the community yep. should have supported the businesses that were actually good because it, it was sort of unfair to the businesses that were good and performing. They couldn't be good anymore because you couldn't leave your house. Yeah, look, I, I think that's a I think it's a solid argument that if there's a government mandate to close, that there probably is a justification for social programs. But I don't know, you know, in in during the Blitz in London, eh, you weren't allowed to have your lights on, much less have your business open, and no one was getting bailed out there. I, I think that as I think as a generation, my generation has become somewhat entitled that when we're killing it and doing well. It's me, it's, it's rugged individualism, and I deserve the majority of my spoils. That's capitalism, I'm a winner. And then when you have this exogenous event that comes in and it's quote unquote, not your fault, we're very good at crediting our character and grit and, and during good times and blaming market forces outside of our control in the bad times, we wanna bail out. And I find that when you have capitalism, full body contact capitalism on the way up and bailouts on the way down, that's not capitalism, it's not socialism, it's cronyism. Right. And, and again, I'm agreeing on the bailouts, but what I'm wondering is why wasn't there more, let's say, organic generosity yeah. from, from the top one-tenth of one percent to help their local communities? When you hear about a $700 billion program to bail out small businesses, do you feel like you got to like support the local dry cleaner or the local Chinese restaurant? I don't know. No, that's a good point. You're like, okay, the government's stepping in with this crazy amount of money that my kids are going to have to pay for because it's all being paid for with additional debt. There is some evidence that the percentage of people and the amount of time they spend helping others has actually gone up. That's, I think, the most encouraging chart in the book is that across every region globally, I don't know if it's COVID, I don't know if it's news or, or social media, but people are spending more time donating time and money to people they will never meet than ever before. Um, but yeah, I, th I think a lot of that lack of empathy you're talking about, when you live in an area that has a huge influx of immigrants, you're empathetic to immigration because you see, oh, they're like us, they get up, they love their kids, they may pray to a different God, but they like the country, they're grateful to be here. When there's an upsurge in immigration, but they live in other neighborhoods, you begin resenting immigrants. 
So when we retreat, as you were talking about, to our homes and our computers, I just think we're less likely to understand each other, less have, have less empathy. And it's become sort of like, I've got mine, you get yours kind of a society. I don't know. There's definitely something. I, it just strikes me how, um, you know, I, I, people can isolate themselves from other people and we can outsource sort of homelessness to certain areas. And until it bothers me, and it doesn't bother me because I spent a better part of two years in my house. And I'm fortunate I have a really nice house and I get, get everything brought in. So I'm kind of immune to what's going on out there. I don't see it. Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent, being there day and night, and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. So everywhere right now is talking about inflation. But there's also a deflation in terms of the price per quality that you get. So like the first cell phone was a Motorola Dynatex and it was $3,995 mm-hmm. and it was two pounds. Mm-hmm. Hold it by your ear. It's like, like in the movie Wall Street, Michael Douglas. Now, of course, everybody has got a smartphone. Smartphone today is more powerful than supercomputers 20 years ago. So on the one hand, there's this incredible increase there's a, a deflation of what you're getting per dollar, mm-hmm. but there's inflation in other ways. And I'm wondering if it's the same thing that we're kind of looking at these negative consequences of technology, but maybe the upsides are far greater. They are. It would be impossible. Uh, take me back to the time of Ward and Beaver and the, with old, we were, we're nostalgic for the past. I'll opt for Netflix and Novocaine. I mean, I, I have no desire to go back to any other time. And we have this nostalgia and this romanticization of the past. Uh, to your point, on a net basis, big tech is good for the country. It's a net good. If you had a red button that said start over and evaporate all of big tech, I don't think you'd want to push it. And every country in the world would take these companies with all their problems. The problem, James, is with the word net. I think fossil fuels have been a net good for our society, even with all the problems around climate change. I think it'd be hard to argue they're not a net good, but we still have an EPA. We still have climate change. We still are making huge investments in carbon uh, capture. Pesticides have been a net positive for society, but we still have an FDA. So to just, I find we want to have a zero one. We make a blunt assumption around technology and go, on the whole, it's been good. So let's not hold Facebook accountable for teen depression. Let's not question our vulnerability, our use vulnerability to TikTok. 
Let's not question 93% of all information being filtered through algorithms from one company called Google. No, net, yeah, they're great. I like them, I own their stocks. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't hold them to the same standards we've held other companies and other organizations. So again, we digress to this, throwing our arms up, these problems are too complicated to solve. Nope, we're not talking about the realm of the possible, we're talking about the realm of the profitable. That's the bottom line. So what would you do to solve them? Uh, well, okay, so we're gonna need a bigger boat, but let's start real broadly with society. I think some sort of national service would be a huge benefit to America. I think a massive investment in young people to level up American through vocational programs. Only 5% of America has vocational certification. It's 50% in Germany. I think there's a lot of fantastic Main Street jobs that pay really well that people avoid because of the fetishization of the traditional four-year degree. We've taught parents in this nation that can't get your kid to MIT and then to Google, you've kind of failed, you haven't measured up. I think we need to make huge investments in after-school programs, sports, social and cultural programs for young people such that they meet and they fall in love and they develop connected tissue with each other. Loneliness is a big deal. So some sort of social service and investment in vocational programs, um, uh, ex dramatically expand our college enrollments. When I applied to UCLA, it had a 76% admissions rate. It's now 6%. So the unremarkable sons of single mothers who lived and died a secretary, yours truly, don't get remarkable opportunities. And that's not what America's about. I wanna go back to America that says, the tip of the spear of American society, our great colleges, is about finding unremarkable kids and giving them remarkable opportunities, not about identifying the top 1% and the freakishly remarkable and turning them into billionaires. That's not America. Do you think though that the government backing every student loan contributed to the, the rise and everybody suddenly wanting to go to college? Like you said, 18 year olds, their prefrontal cortex are they're not fully formed. They say, oh yeah, sure, let me borrow $200,000 so I can go to UCLA now because UCLA tuition has risen so much because the college presidents all know the government's gonna pay for it. And these students are taking out these loans. The parents can't argue with the students. The students realize only later that they can't get a job that pays back these loans. Of course, now we're, we're, we're forgiving them, which is in itself a regressive tax because still mostly the wealthier families send their kids to college and not the lower income families. So do you think even though government did this great thing of allowing everybody to go to college, it's resulted in the decline of vocational training and like you said, the fetishization of going to a four-year college. I agree with everything you said. So my university that I, where I have my affiliation, NYU, kids have borrowed more money to attend NYU than any university in the world. They've borrowed three and a half billion dollars to come to NYU. And when you shove paperwork in front of somebody to borrow hundreds of thousands of dollars and there's an NYU logo behind you and that person is 18, it's predatory. There's just yeah. no getting around it, it's predatory. And for many of the degrees at UCLA, you could borrow a quarter of a million dollars to get a degree from my school, Stern, and 90% of the time, it's a good investment. The average compensation of a recent MBA graduate from Stern is get this, the average this year will be $212,000. It's amazing. What are they doing? Where do they go? They're going to work for Google and for for private equity firms and venture capitalists. And if you go to work for a good consulting firm with with bonuses and everything, you're going to make two hundred grand year one. Google yeah. and stock options. Anyway, it's extraordinary compensation. It's worth it. Should you borrow one hundred fifty thousand dollars to get a degree in philosophy undergrad from NYU? I don't know. I don't know. And I think there's ways around this. One, you put the university on the hook for some or all of the defaults. And they're gonna start doing the math and say, you know what? 
we have evidence showing that this degree can't support the kind of debt that we're talking about here, so we're not gonna issue it to you. Or if 30 of the top universities have endowments that are greater than the GDP of Singapore and the UAE, then why are taxpayers bailing these people out? So right. there's something to the notion that we've created, any bubble is a function of cheap credit. We've offered kids too much cheap credit. Uh, but me and my colleagues have also been predatory and we should be on the hook for some of this bad debt. And also we need to stop shoving everything through a traditional four-year degree. There's a lot of kids that would pay 40 or 50 grand and maybe they borrow that money to get a two-year degree in cybersecurity. And guess what? There's a lot of demand for those kids. There's probably a 12 or 18 month degree in health tech, like figuring out how to repair all those crazy machines that we're using everywhere. There's a construction. We're gonna have nuclear power plants, uh, in my opinion, uh, uh, ribbon cuttings on, or groundbreakings on all sorts of alternative energy, complex projects all over the nation, specialty construction. If you know how to install an energy efficient HVAC right now, you can probably start at 80,000 and be making 120 to 150 in three years. That's a good living. You feel good about yourself. Particularly if you don't have the debt to, to pay for it. Or even a little bit. No one has a birthright to go to college. I borrowed money to go to UCLA and Cal, but it was a total of $20,000 because my tuition for seven years of school was a total of $7,000. I don't. I think it's okay that I had to work. I one. I remember one summer living off of bananas and milk and top ramen. I thought that was good for me. It was okay to borrow a little bit of money, but it's gotten so expensive, and we kind of prey on the hopes and dreams of the middle class to transfer one and a half trillion dollars to the endowments and faculty of universities, such that every day me and my colleagues can wake up and answer the question we ask ourselves every day. How do I increase my compensation while reducing my accountability? And we have found the ultimate business model. We position ourselves as luxury brands and we constrain supply such that it creates this aspirational LVMH-like feeling. Kids then get arbitraged down to second tier schools. We are a cartel that is more corrupt in terms of pricing than OPEC. And kids end up paying a Mercedes price tag for a Kia product. It's predatory, full stop. But I feel all of this might've started with good intentions, which is, I agree. and I'm, I'm going back to the, the GI bill in, in 1947 or 46, which, you know, basically paid for the education of all returning veterans, which I fully would support. Even if, it were, if I was back there in the 1940s, these are people who risked their lives for their, for their country and to perform valuable service for their country. Of course, we want to help them get healthcare, get an education, get a good job, go back into society. But this led to all the student loan laws in the 60s and which has led to the current situation, the easy credit in the current situation now. I wonder how complicit, you know, government collectively doing something for the middle class is, seems like a good thing and I like it, but then on the other hand, it could get to these extremes where we're now are in trouble. Yeah, but we're, we're smart enough to figure this out. And you're right, it's somewhat of an investment in the middle class, but when you're 77 times more likely to get into an elite university if you come from a top 1% income earning household than if you don't, it is college has become kind of the playground of two cohorts, the kids of rich people and the freakishly remarkable. And also the cancer here, the tumor is student debt, but the cancer, the underlying disease is that the costs have just gone up too much. When I went to UCLA, it was a shitty campus. The buildings were outdated. You know, it was, you sat in wooden chairs. 
and it was cheap. Now it looks like it now looks like the Four Seasons Bel Air, the Rolexification of these places, incredible, and also these departments that spring up everywhere. We have departments in leadership and ethics. I don't think I can get my 14-year-old to be ethical. I think he's already sort of baked. I'm going to try, but I'm going to teach a 27-year-old how to be ethical. So we keep creating these departments that have no accountability. There's no measurable outcome. So I can think big thoughts as a faculty member, make a couple hundred grand a year, have staff around me, have amazing benefits, and there's no measurable outcome. We have diversity and inclusion departments in the most diverse and inclusive places on the planet. And as we are fortunate enough to bring in more people from diverse backgrounds, we need to make a greater investment in ensuring they stay in school. I'm all down with that. But what measurable outcomes are there around these departments? And I, I know this as a faculty member. Once these departments and costs are there, they never go away. And they're nice people doing interesting work. And by the way, if you were to ever question the economic viability of the leadership and ethics department, or God forbid, a diversity and inclusion department, you're sanctioned as a, you're immediately labeled a bigot and sanctioned. Right. And so what do we have? The administrative bloat at these campuses and the cost is just so crazy that we have to charge kids $72,000 a year in tuition to attend NYU. My class, and I, I have no moral clarity here, I taught 300 kids during COVID on Zoom. They each pay $7,000, James, to take my class. So $2.1 million transferred from young people to NYU, much of it paid for in debt, to listen to me do this 12 nights in a row. There's just something wrong about that, right? $170,000 a night? I'm good at what I do. Some nights I'm great. That's just wrong. And so we have to go after, the, the, the cancer here is costs. And I would have taken some of that forgiveness money and said, all right, we need a grand bargain with our public universities, which educate two-thirds of our kids. We will pay for you to scale. That's going to be technology. That's going to be infrastructure. So you can increase your freshman enrollment 6% a year. At the same time, with the use of technology, and because we're going to finance this, we need you to decrease tuition 2% a year. Where does that get us in 10 years after inflation? Double the enrollments and opportunities for young people to get into a good college, a good public university at half the price. Shouldn't be free. I hate the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren free college. That's stupid. That's a transfer of wealth to the rich. But we need to make it much more affordable. And we need to also, more than affordability, it's, it's accessibility. How do you get into these schools? How do you get into the good schools? There's no reason. We can scale Salesforce 40% a year, and no one's like, well, it's going to ruin the brand. But if we grow UCLA or Stanford more than 0.4%, they're like, it's going to ruin the brand? No, it's not. Harvard lets in 1,500 students. A good Starbucks serves more people than Harvard lets in, and they have an endowment that if you stacked in $100 bills, the Virgin Orbital One couldn't clear it. It would run into that stack of hundreds. It's just insane that we aren't scaling these universities and providing more access to unremarkable kids. And again, this is back to this fetishization. We think that America is about identifying remarkable young people and then turning them into billionaires. That's not fucking America. America's identifying unremarkable kids. I remember the call I got from UCLA when I applied for a second time. 76% admissions. I didn't get in. My dad's like, no problem. No problem. I got a job for you installing shelving at these new developments out in the Inland Empire. I used to get in my Volkswagen Rabbit and head out to the to Ontario 
And it, it was literally in a closet for eight or 10 hours, making 18 bucks an hour, which felt like a lot of money back then, installing That shelving. was a lot back then. It was, it felt good. And then my only thing, but I was in a closet all day installing shelving. And my only thing I really looked forward to is I'd get ridiculously fucking high with my coworkers and then take to the highways of the Inland Empire and drive home. And I remember saying to my mom, I was living with my mom, like, this is it? Like, this is it? That this is like, where I, this is my life. I'm in a closet all day and there's nothing wrong with that work, but I had bigger aspirations. And so I applied, I appealed. And my mom said, well, is there an appeal process at UCLA? I applied and I told him the truth. Son of a mother's a secretary. I want to do great things. I want to be in education. I want to get educated. And I'm going to be installing shelving for the rest of my life. I don't have a vision for what to do. And I remember this person in the admissions department called me and said, you're not qualified, but you're a native son of California. We're going to give you a shot. Changed my life. That to me is what America is. And, and I worry that a lot of our public institutions have said, no, our job is to find the remarkable. And guess what? No institution or bloodline can predict greatness at an 18-year-old. I can prove to every parent that 99% of your children are not in the top 1%. And we need to start, re you know who doesn't need college? The kids of rich people. They got connections. They likely had a great education. Most rich kids coming out of great schools. I think my kid, uh, who has the benefit of great education, my 15-year-old, is going to graduate high school much better educated than I graduated UCLA. I, I think just as a general rule, or if you call it gestalt, fall back in love with the unremarkable. And higher ed needs to dramatically expand access. And again, a lot of this, I think, has been related to, to government policies. What do you think on the flip side where you have private industry, uh, like Google now, paying for uh, creating this Google Certificates program? So I can sign up for classes at Coursera on cybersecurity for $49, get some Google certificate in cybersecurity. And there's a, a willing population of companies willing to hire me, able to hire me because I have these Google certificates. Could private industry start, because they have so much excess wealth now, could they start providing, filling in some of these holes where government's been lacking? I think Google certificates is outstanding. And there's just so much great data coming out of that. They're getting jobs at $85,000. The majority of yeah. them don't have traditional college degrees. Many of them come from lower middle income bar. It's wonderful. And I think Google should be commended for it. Um, I think waiting on the private sector's better angels to show up. I think there'll be some well-publicized examples such as Google certificates. But I do think the government plays a role here. And I think our public universities, whether it's Michigan or the University of North Carolina or Florida, Florida State's going to graduate more kids this year than the entire Ivy League combined. Um, but we also have to recognize college isn't for everybody, granted. But maybe a one- or two-year vocational program is. Yeah. Maybe you say, you know what? I don't love college. It's not what I want to do. I don't want to borrow this kind of money. I need to make money right away. I need to help out a sick parent. Or I just don't like school. A lot of kids just don't like school. Okay, do you think you could suck it up? And, oh, maybe show some aptitude for math and figure out, like, get a one-year intensive degree in cybersecurity? Are you handy? Are you good with your hands? We got to construct all sorts of shit in this country from the infrastructure bill. Do you want to do an apprenticeship? We pay for it. Maybe even borrow some money. But we got this great on-ramp to the middle class. Instead, it's like, okay, get a degree or figure it out, failure. <laughs> you know what I mean? Go to work. You know, I, I think we've just, we've just, people say they'd rather be baristas than in construction. That makes no sense. There's some great jobs and great careers out there. But anyways, 
I love the Google certificates program. I think they should be commended, but I don't think we're going to move the needle without some sort of government intervention because education is a long-term investment, um, and it 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 kind of needs to be a forward-leaning investment. Um, you know, University of California absolutely saved my bacon, and I I wanted to have I want as many unremarkable kids to have access to that kind of experience. Yeah, no, I I, I agree, and you know, so look between China as an existential threat the benefits and perils of technology, particularly in terms of this increasing trend towards isolation is something I very much worry about. All of the things that are happening in, in climate change and income inequality and inflation right now. Again, your book, Adrift, America in 100 Charts. And these charts are great. Like I was just, just as entertainment, I was reading these charts out loud to my kids the other day because they were fascinated and they were asking questions about- That's about child abuse. <laughs> Call child services. <laughs> well, yeah. I do think eventually they all cleared up pretty quickly, but yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe they thought I was a little too serious for once. But these are important charts and, and a picture's worth a thousand words. And you, you've really, you, you, I know you've been accumulating these charts over a, a, a good period of time and it's been a great effort. Like, do you use this in, in your classes that you teach? Oh yeah, I mean, I make- the majority of my income from speaking. And I was, I'm kind of known for like, if I have 30 minutes, I'll get through 150 slides. But everything we do, it's like, can we say it with a picture? Because we've had the alphabet for 1500 years, but we've been interpreting images off of cave walls and, you know, off of scrolls for thousands of years. So we, we can absorb or register an image 60 to 70 times faster than words. So they're really powerful and I, I love them. And I find they're harder you know, it's like if I'd had more time, I would have written you a shorter note. A really good chart just really like hits you. It hits your emotion. When you see opioid overdoses relative to the Vietnam conflict in a chart and you have a picture of a veteran and you have a picture of a teen or an unmarked grave, it just hits people. They immediately understand the problem as opposed to reading. Did you say like also that you do 150 charts in 30 minutes, or 150 images in 30 minutes? Or slides. I slides. like to go fast with slides. Yeah. That's interesting because there's two styles of, this is unrelated, but there's two styles of presentation. There's the style where you uh, 30 minutes and you go through maybe 15 slides. And then there's mm -hmm. entire books written how, no, the reverse should be uh, the way you do presentations, do as many slides as possible. So obviously you take, you take that path and I guess you find that more effective. It's situational. I, I ran into Gary Vaynerchuk the other day, just out. And Gary V, I, I, there was sort of a speaking circuit for for a while pre-COVID, and I was running into the same people, like um, Tony Hawk. I would run into him everywhere. Yeah. Um, and Gary V, I would always, for whatever reason, the people who would hire me to speak would hire Gary V. And it, Gary, it's funny by the way, the, one of the last conferences I was at. Both Tony Hawk and Gary Vee spoke. Yeah, <laughs> they've I, they've made the cut. I'm no longer getting invited. But the thing that always really impressed me about Gary Vee is he wouldn't have any slides. He'd be talking about technology and social media, no slides, just talk. And I, I actually think that's harder. He's very good. He's very yeah. good. So I think it's situational. I just think it's kind of like what works for you. Yeah. Well, uh, Scott Galloway, once again, I think this is, this is the third or fourth or fifth book you've been on the podcast for, and I really appreciate uh, you coming on, and your books are always fascinating. If people haven't read your prior books, they should go back and read those after they read Adrift, America in 100 Charts. Everything you say is is just makes me think. I, this, this trend towards isolation I want to I wanna think about because it really is the kind of dark downside of, of this 
service as a commodity where just everything comes to our door and we don't have to see human beings anymore. It's it's kind of reaching its its pinnacle and I, I don't know where it goes next, but I'm always food for thought and everything we, we speak about. Your your book's great. And again, it's entertaining and informative, which is always my favorite. So thanks very much for for writing it and for coming back on the podcast. Thank you, James. And let's commit to getting together in person real soon. <laughs> Yeah, well, I I want to go to London at some point. I haven't been there since twenty nine, since actually twenty twenty, right before COVID. Come on over, I'll take you to a football game. It's it's uh, there's no way to experience uh, the UK than a Premier League soccer game. It's just it's I'm not into sports, and it's by far the best sporting event I've ever. It's a cultural experience. It's amazing. All right, you're on. I'll do that. All right, thanks, James. Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent, being there day and night, and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.